Des O'Grady, you're an Irish Jesuit. You were a philosopher who lectured in Milltown Institute. Mm-hmm. You were a curate in Ballyhahill in Limerick and in Glastool. And now you're one of the chaplains in the Dundrum Central Mental Hospital. And just a while ago, you were diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And you're going to talk right. to, to us today about that. Maybe we'll begin with the early signs or how did it all begin? Well, I suppose since I think the diagnosis was correct, I don't know. Why did I go to the hospital? I don't know. I can't remember now. I can remember the actual first visit was to a doctor who's since retired. Bertram, I think, was his name, but I don't think I've got it quite right. But why I went there, I haven't a notion. Obviously, something was troubling me. But uh, it's all gone now. I remember I met you one day in the grounds in Milltown Park last year. And I said hello to you because I hadn't seen you for a while. And you you looked at me and I thought, oh, Des doesn't remember my name. But you immediately said, you'll have to tell me your name because I'm not remembering people's names very well. I'm very proactive like that. And usually I do remember the face. And why should I be embarrassed about the fact that I've got Alzheimer's? the other person could be quite upset. Oh, have I done something on him? Have I upset him or anything like that? So I think the best way, and so it works. If I say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm suffering from Alzheimer's or my memory is gone, something like that, can you tell me your name again? And then we get into a conversation because immediately the shock of not being remembered changes into, oh, the poor fella, what's happened? So when did you discover then that, when did you get the actual diagnosis? Do you remember that, that you were told? Can you, can you remember back to anything at all or is it very much, what is it like for you now? Well, to put days and dates on it, no, I can't do that kind of thing. Um, and no, I can't remember why I took the decision to do something like go to the hospital. Um, I can remember that I had to have a brain scan and then come back to see the doctor afterwards and the doctor's diagnosis was that I was suffering from short-term memory loss, was what he described, is how it's described. But it was that the, an arteriosclerosis in the brain, certain part of the brain, so that the blood supply to various places was lost. And the result was that the ordinary movement of your own activities, your own thinking to storage in the back of the brain was impeded. So as soon as I'd finished the job, I forgot all about it and I went off to the next. And, uh, you know, uh, it's very embarrassing. You start a conversation with someone, you get their name, and then you went to say goodbye, the name is gone again. I go off and meet someone else and they say, where were you? Might be an hour down the road, might be only minutes down the road. I say, oh, I had a conversation with... You, you feel very awkward. Yeah. Uh, just not being able to you know, recount the, the moments in the day and what's happened and so on. But I find that for my own behaviour, it's a, my best shot at dealing with it is to kind of say, oh, I'm afraid I, all those things go out of my head or something like that. It'll come back later on, but I can't get it now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in exploring what that feels like. First of all, when you did know that you had Alzheimer's, like, were you shocked? Were you devastated? Or how did you react? Can you remember that? Mm. 
Well, I don't do devastation much, but I do retire into my shell and kind of um, incubate and see where am I going to go from here. I knew that before I got that diagnosis, I'd always known I had difficulty remembering. Um, my mother would have said when I came home from visiting someone, says, you never have any news coming back. <laughs> I would have heard it all. I would have been there. Who was there? Uh, well, I remember Auntie May was there now. And was Johnny with her? Johnny? Who's Johnny? <laughs> Johnny, her husband. <laughs> I, I would have thought that was just a man thing, but let my prejudice go on. Well, it may be a man thing, that one is not, but my mother certainly would have thought that it wasn't so, that I just seemed not to take in anything going on around. And it would be true. I couldn't remember themes of novels and things like that. And one of the areas now that I'm affected most is um, I can't read a novel because I can't remember the characters, the connections and all the rest. And a friend of mine in the house, um, Kennedy O'Brien, who's a great English reader, uh, gave me a lovely little book some time ago called The Uncommon Reader. The Uncommon Reader being Queen Elizabeth in England and uh, a little story about her discovering through a page boy, the joy of reading. So there's only the Queen and her page boy in the story. So you'll be able to remember those two characters. Wow. That was great. That's Absolutely great. excellent. And he gave me another one more recently by a Japanese authoress called The Housekeeper and the Professor. Yes. And I've heard of this. just a charming book. Absolutely charming. But again, just the housekeeper and the professor. Everyone else her son, the housekeeper's son also. But that was always in the story. And I absolutely delighted in them and could manage and hold all those together. But, I mean, to take up a good Dickensian novel, not a hope. <laughs> <laughs> not a hope. And I presume philosophy, your f oh, early philosophy. love, how does that work? Oh, no, all of that technical stuff is all gone, long gone. Uh, I would have known that I'd left all that behind. I never thought of it as being... Uh, due to memory loss but I knew my interests had moved into the areas of uh, you know the pastoral work that I went into after I left the teaching of philosophy but then in that pastoral work and that's quite a few years back now probably 10 years since I went into it I would have known I couldn't get the names of the parishioners and that was I felt well, that's a pity people like you to know them by name especially the priest so I would have um with the older people and the people I visited on parish rounds, I used to make careful note and I'd look at it beforehand and say, who am I visiting today? Get the name right again. Uh, so, but it took yeah, work. Took and do you do that now as well? Well, I'm pretty much freelance now. Uh, I do have the work in um, the Central Mental Hospital, but there I'm dealing with the same people week after week after week. And they know I've short-term memory loss. So if I don't remember their names, they'll tell me. <laughs> and that's the great thing about being open about it. You know, once it's out there and said, people can then say to you, this is my name, or, you know, put it into the conversation in some way so that, that you know. What is it like being you today in the sense of, do you remember yesterday? Or when you go now from me today and say by tonight, will you remember that you've done this interview? I don't know. It's very unpredictable. I remember some things and I don't remember others. I think the things that would have a, a high emotional charge stay. 
things that are business, things that are items of information disappear very quickly. And names were never very strong an item with me. But I'd remember the face, and the face will come back, and then I'd say, I know who, who I was with today. And would that all the associations come with that, say, as well? Oh, how do I know? Certain associations come back anyway. And yes, I mean, I think at the effective level, in many ways I think I'd be much freer now than I would have been before because I would have focused more on the knowledge before. Now I just see people and the whole sense of the, you know, the relationship, not in terms of the acts or the deeds, but the affection, the ease, the enjoyment and so on with people. That's there very, very clearly. Yeah. And I wonder, in terms of, you know, the way through life we meet people and maybe somebody hurts us and we get over it and maybe they say sorry and, you know, other people that we don't really get on that well with or they annoy us. Now, mm-hmm. is that different for you now? Because you you don't have those memories of mm-hmm. somebody, a provincial moved you here or, yeah. you know, a superior did this to you or a fellow Jesuit. Is it different like that? And do you relate differently to people because you have no back history? I don't think in that way, because as I say, the effective content seems to stay on. But at the other hand, I would have always been inclined to say, ah, well, we're all different, and these things happen. So I let go of annoyances, and uh, I would be good at picking up again someone that I fell out with or someone that I had an awful row with. I'd be often the one to make the move and say what on earth got into us the other day or something like that, you know? So that's never been a real problem with me. I just know myself that I can get mad with people and then I'll go back and I'll say, God, I don't know how I behaved like that with you. I'm sorry. Mm. But to keep in touch would be much more important than saving face. I never worried about saving face. I think because I never really had much of a face. I was no good at football. I couldn't keep up with the lads at school. I couldn't run. I had asthma when I was a kid. So I had to drop out of a lot of things and say, I just can't do these things. So maybe I got used early on to realising I've got my limitations. And then I found I've also got my assets. I was very clever. Everyone of my eckers at school because <laughs> I had the answers to the sums right. <laughs> my own father had Alzheimer's and he had a personality change Mm-hmm. dramatically he was a very gentle man his language was very circumspect and he ended up with a change of quite you know cursing language and and he became angry for a period of time is that a stage you've experienced or did you experience any change in that way so far the change for me was in the opposite direction i found that i got upset very little except when i felt i didn't know what to do then i got upset just not knowing what to do. I found my ease and affection and, what we say, patience with people has just risen enormously. I don't get upset with things. You mentioned to me um, when we were talking Mm. earlier about a friend of yours whom you do retreat work with, which we'll talk Mm. about in a moment, but you were saying at the beginning you noticed a change there and that you had a learning process around that. Tell us about that. I don't remember that now. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I'll, I'll remind you what you yeah. said was that you noticed when you were working with her at the beginning, you would get, and you've worked together for years, that you started to get agitated ah, about yes. things. Yes. 
That really was the, the sense that of feeling, I don't understand what she said. We're not understanding one another. And I would have always been wanting to have clarity. But it was really that I was needing too much security altogether. So that um, she was kind of bedeviled by my further questions or pauses and the work never got done. So we did have to straighten that out. Yeah, you said you spoke to her and you realised that when you reflected on it yourself that you were probably getting a little bit worried about, oh, I'm, I'm, if, if I don't get on top of things, this is all going to fall apart. Oh, yeah. I mean, the anxiety at the early stages was high. Not been able to remember... Yeah, not been able to remember that either in detail. But I know that um, there was a time of considerable confusion when I'd be saying, I, I know how to get... Play-. Like finding directions. I'm a Dubliner, born and bred, lived all my life and love walking around the city. Now I can't... Someone says to me, um, how do I get to Mespel Road? And I say, oh, Mespel Road, ah, yeah. And I would find I couldn't do it. I know I know, but I can't articulate it. And that upsets me. And sometimes then I feel I don't want to admit it. So that upsets me even more. But I'm getting used to that. And how do you deal with those kind of frustrations? Because they are significant. I deal with them, first of all, by admitting them and saying, wait now, you've lost that out. But I also deal with them then in terms of... like. When I've found I've lost some, I get out my maps and I have a look at them again and refresh my memory. Like the map of Dublin, Dublin City. I say, I couldn't place Waterloo Road the other day. Now, where is it? And then I'll get it. And say, OK, I'll try to remember that. So I'm just too practical-minded. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like someone said to me, Des, you don't do drama, do you? <laughs> And do you think that's important, that you don't do drama, that you keep things in a perspective for yourself with awareness? Well, for me, it has proved very important, you know, that um, I find it's a terrible nuisance. Everything takes twice or four times as long to do as it used to do because I go on wrong tracks and I have to retrace and I have to start again and I have to check up what I've done and all of that kind of stuff. But now I just take it that, OK, that's where I am. Is the job worth doing? I want to get the job done. Is it done OK? It is. OK. So it takes twice as long. That's the way it is. And uh, I suppose I was always a bit realistic. You see, even as a child, I had to come with grips with my own limitations. At that stage, it was asthma. Like a... a I know, kids in the city. And I grew up during the war, so there were no cars or anything like that. So we played on the street. We get tired playing on the street. And we go to the next street. And then we go up to Palmerston Park. I grew up in Renla. And uh, I had to come to realise that by the time I got to Palmerston Park, everyone else was on their way back home. Because I couldn't run with the asthma. So I had to say, oh, gee, I can't do that. How do I make a life for myself in it? I can walk forever. So I took up walking, getting the 48A bus out to Ballantyre, going up onto Tree Rock and all the mountains there. <sighs> they took the breath out of me. They really did. And then, you know, just, why the 48A? Take the 44. Bring it out, and it's scary. 
Beautiful. Why stop there? Get the Glendalough bus and the Worldshire Oyster. So, so the way that failure in your life, you took failure and you always made something from it. So it never really was a failure. Um, I, well, it was a limitation if it wasn't a failure. It was a real limitation. But, um, but yes, it never robbed me of my joy. But I did have to come to grips with it. I would have loved to have been one of the lads. I couldn't be. Uh, yeah, that, that was a real loss. And I think it meant that I wouldn't be as sociable at all. Uh, like my sister now is far more sociable than I am. And you could say it's the man thing, but it's not. I, I'm, lots of men are very sociable, uh, whereas I tended to take less energy-demanding activities, even as a kid, and right through. The asthma didn't leave me until I was, I'd say, about 40. So that always meant a check on exercise, uh, on strenuous work, that kind of stuff, you know. And now you're living with another limitation Mm -hmm. which is your memory loss and it's a big one oh it is how do you deal with that do you think as a as a as something that is ever present and is going to develop and be ongoing Mm -hmm. well i look at what do i want to do i want to do the work of the chaplaincy in dundrum i'm very committed to that it's Resources for the patients there are very limited, and I'm the only chaplain in the thing. Brendan Duddy here gives me a hand with some of the stuff, and that's great. It gives me the breaks, but fundamentally, I'm the chaplain there. So I just find ways of keeping going. Um, And just recently now, Kennedy O'Brien, that I mentioned earlier, says, oh, you know, I think I have something that might help you. And it basically is this, um, what they call universalis. It's an online missile. So you can put that on your computer, you can get exactly the text you want, and you go up to the chapel with the text for the day, and you can make your own additions into it or scribblings on it and so on. So that way I can prepare. I don't have to rely on the memory. I used to be finding I couldn't keep step on the way through the the mass, and I'd get a little distraction, and I wouldn't know where I had been. Now... Patients are very understanding. I'm quite open with the patients about it all. And I have my mass server and sacristan and so on from among the patients. And they all understand the situation. So at the moment now, we use the little mislet most of the time. When I have Sundays, there's always the text there. And the sacristan sits on his seat and he has a pencil in his hand. And when I get stuck, he gets a sheet, puts a mark on it, comes over and says... That's it, Des. <laughs> and we continue. <laughs> and that's just taken for granted now. No trouble with it. We'll have fun with Holy Week. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll be part of it in a they'll way that maybe they wouldn't have been before. So you're creating a community that ministers to each other. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, I do think it has its real, a very valid spin-off there. Now, I've always been good at associating with the patients and at empathising with their situation, limitations and that. These would be patients who have 
maybe committed a serious crimes or different oh, crimes, yes. but they've not been gone to prison because they've been deemed to be not culpable through mental That's disorder. It. Yeah. Uh, the old thing was NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity, but that if they had been guilty, it would have been a jail sentence. The danger is still there, of course. So the situation now is that instead of being sent to prison, they're sent to hospital to be cured of the root cause. Unfortunately, that can be a very, very slow process when it's a psychiatric problem, a mental problem. So we have a long-term relationship in the hospital. Just thinking, it's quite moving that you are there as a chaplain and you are suffering from your own brain dysfunction Mm. as well. Yeah. Well, I think that um, helps me to be more aware of the disability that patients are suffering from themselves, um, that they can't rely for them on their on their sense of things. It's a more emotional kind of level with them. But they do say realise that I have difficulty in what I'm doing as well. And I would say that gives a, a more ease between us and a more acceptance. And then I think... What probably helps me as a chaplain then coming out of that is that I say to myself now, mm, I know he killed his mother, but I wonder what's, what it's like to be him. What's the goodness? What are his hopes? What are his joys? And I can approach him as another person with his own life that he treasures and would love to have the freedom to live fully and explore it with him. And that's what I do as a chaplain. Uh, try to help people to refine themselves, to find their peace with the people around, uh, to re-socialise. I mean, that's the whole work of the hospital. But as a chaplain, I do that too. So in general, and I know you work with the Alzheimer's Society, is it important that, um, would you say, that people that you are close to and work with, that the more open you can be about it, that that can help the families or your friends or your Jesuit community to work together with you to make it better all round for everybody mm-hmm. because it can be very bewildering for yeah. your friends and uh, colleagues. And to be honest, I think the um, way I've been handling the Alzheimer's now, uh, what last two years or so, has been a gift to very many people. People feel... Let's say you can get on with life without being fully healthy, fully perfect. That if you have disabilities, you don't have to deny them. Uh, they see that I can live very peacefully and productively with the situation I'm in and that I just get on with life and enjoy life. So I would say a lot, a lot of people say, God, there's your tonic. So, I agree. <laughs> so I find that that's... Uh, a, a spin-off, if you like, never intended by me. I didn't set out to be a benefit, but I, I would say that for many people, they would now feel, people that have met me and so on, much easier with other people who might have memory problems or with the thought within their own family, say, or whatever, or the thought that they might get memory problems. Now, you have to be careful with that. There may well come a time, the one I dread, you know, uh, when, you know, I won't know your Pat. I won't recognise that I've met you before. And that, I know, with my sister, um, not know 
that to me, uh, I just so love the being with people and doing things with people and being uplifted by people that thought that all that would be gone. That brings, as you can see, tears to my eyes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I suppose, you know, I could say trust in God, and that's true, I do. But there's also with me just a sense of live the life you've got, and I will live it as best I can as long as I've given the life to live. And uh, I've lived through difficulties, as I was telling you about my childhood experiences, uh, the Alzheimer's, dementia now, uh, failure in work at various things. I set out on a few projects and said, I'm not up to this. Failures in relationships. And they're all sad and hurtful. But there's much more to life and all of those, and a lot of these, certainly relationships, failures, we've mended. They're the ones I want to mend. I don't like to go away. And even where I can't mend it with another person, I mend it in myself. I know I just keep wishing them well. You have a great sense of, accept. first of all, honesty. You tell the truth as it is. You then have an, you come, it would appear, to an acceptance of that mm-hmm. through awareness. Yeah. And then you take action. That's a powerful way of dealing with anything in life and particularly with something as potentially debilitating as Alzheimer's. Um, I, yes, I think that's true. It's a kind of my own way of thinking it more is the life I have whatever it is from the time I was an infant up to now is the life I have and either you can bemoan its shortcomings or you can delight in the gifts that are in it I've set out to delight in the gifts that are in it having I think started off as a kid feeling oh my god I want to do this I want to do that and I want to do the other and I only went around miserable myself annoying everyone else and alienating them so I says, well, this ain't no life. What have you got? And I found I had an awful lot. I live a very happy life now, thanks be to God. And it hasn't been diminished by Alzheimer's. I think in some ways, because Alzheimer's has restricted my activities, I've much more contemplative space, and that has done me a world of good. Tell me about that. You know yourself, you're a busy lady, family, background, all sorts of things to do, and that can scatter you left, right and centre all over the place. Now people's expectations of me, my own expectations of me, are much more limited. I've kind of says, well, wait now, it's time for me to choose what I'm going to do and not let myself be pressed here, there and the other place. And that's what I've done. And I've asked myself, what do I really want to do with the time I have? And I know... At the core of it, yeah, I want to deepen my appreciation of all the things that are good in my life. My gratitude to my uncles and aunts way back in the farms in County Kilkenny that I used to spend all my summer holidays on. I just found it such a delight. The richness of those people, their generosity, which I always appreciated. The Ah, uh, um, my aunt in the house that I used to live in was just an extraordinarily motherly woman. 
she would be very strict. And then when things would go wrong, ah, Alana, come here and let me give you a hug. <laughs> and oh, everything would be resolved. We and all need know. an aunt like that. <laughs> we, we don't know, but it was such a... So even things that went wrong, I knew they could be mended. <laughs> and I think that was a great gift I had on the way through. So now I just find that I don't focus on the things I can't do. I focus on the things I can do. And I just find there are so many of them that are worth doing. And I love doing it. And one of the things that has come out of it is I give much more time to talking to people, listening to people, enjoying people, rather than, oh, I have to rush off and do this. I have to rush off and do that. And I have the perfect excuse. Everyone says, I should poor this. <laughs> and they let me off to do what I want to do. How do you see God in your Alzheimer's diagnosis? I live with God, and uh, I wish it hadn't happened, but it has. That's okay. I don't expect God to answer me in any normal form. What my talking to God does, I don't talk to him much, but I'm aware of him all the time. And when I do forget him, I come back to him. And it's just like... I suppose a sick child holding on to the mother's arm. The mother can't cure the disease. God doesn't seem to think that this is to be cured. Okay, but I still keep trusting that. I know, like, Mammy will tuck me into bed safely at night and will see that I'm okay. Someday God is going to make himself present. I'll see it's okay. But that's faith. I've no argument for it beyond the sense that life as I've lived it has become more and more precious to me every day and the people I live with the world I live in has become more glorious despite all the atrocities the assets, the gas uh, the terrible things that happen our inability to let go of that awful desire we have for money even seeing people dying of hunger around us. Uh, There is so much wrong. But would I help by getting depressed and giving up in the middle of it? No. Keep my hope. It is my gift to the world, if you like. It's my trying to do something in the situation. To let go my sense and my hope that actually all will be well. All manner of things will be well. That to me would destroy me and would betray everyone that trusted in me. So it's not a rational answer. It's a lived answer. From the heart. Can I ask you one question? A lot of times people have been defined in their essence by the memories. You know, I I was born, I did this, then I went here, then I got a degree, then I taught philosophy, Mm. da-da-da. And your narrative becomes who you are. Your narrative has been totally disrupted. You are no longer able to even remember those things. You can't remember going to the doctor for your diagnosis. Has it changed your understanding of what it means in essence to be a human being when there's no longer a memory bank? Mm-hmm. No, and the memory hasn't disappeared. It's short-term memory. It's kind of working memory that goes So, I mean, I can still remember so vividly. One evening, 
one moment down in Ballamartin, that was my mother's home place in Kilkenny, and the night was pitch dark. There was nothing that I could see. There was no light at all. I was frightened out of my life. I lived in Dublin with all the street lights. It's never dark. And I used to have this fantasy as a child that there was a tiger under my bed. So I dared not put my foot <laughs> over the edge of the bed. So I crawled down the bed, hoping that it wasn't a cloudy night, that I would look out, out of the pitch dark. I mean, there's no, no, there was no rural electrification or anything at the time. There was no imagining for a city lad what the darkness was like. It was palpable. I crawled out to the bottom of the bed, looked out this little window, country house, you know, the windows are much smaller. And just I, it, an explosion of light. It, I never saw such a starry night in my life. Now, that memory will never go. And the whole lot of it is there. I can see the window frame, the attitude, but I can see that brilliance. So, and there was life out there. That kind of made me say, OK, I live in a good place. There was someone there to rescue me. That's the cosmos being there for me. The stars shone. And it was just a great moment. And I have so many memories. I mean, not just one, of just walking through the fields. They all stay. I think it's... I don't know now where memory stays, but, you know... I almost feel the spring in my feet when I start thinking of walking through my uncle's farm and going up through the fields. And I can see, you know, when it comes near milking time, the cattle, the cows start walking back to the farm and the cow is coming across from the gap of the field to meet me and so on. And just feeling happy to meet them and join in with them. And I get to the far end and I'd walk back behind them all. But the companionship, the sense of, yeah, just ease. And they'd look at you and they'd say, ah, yeah, you're OK, we know you. <laughs> and uh, again, my uncle's horse, uh, we had a tractor for most of the time I was there, but you needed a horse for some small jobs. And uh, bringing him back into the from the field, riding on his back, not being able to ride, and the horse would get faster and faster and faster. And I'd have to pull on the reins to slow him down, and I'd get him to stop and say, OK, and off we go again, and then I'd pull the reins again, you know. All of those, to me, what I would call them are, I don't know, the kindness of creation, that in so many ways, so many things that were there that I had and they gave me knife, and they still do. And all those memories are very, very sharp. I mean, I can remember probably every... I love mountain climbing, but I can remember them all. They live with me. Yeah, they live with you. And it's interesting, you made a point. You said, I don't know where memory resides, where mm. it is. So even if at a later stage you weren't maybe recalling them in your head... Yeah. Looking at the way you're moved and energised, telling those stories, they're in you. Yeah. I mean, there is that hum, which I think is the collective memory that seems to be with me all the time, feeling it is good, it is good. So I have a great ability, I suppose, learned from my own early experience of taking things as they are and finding the goodness in them. And uh, no, I think that's a great gift. 
just it's been a privilege to speak to you and to hear your wisdom and just your contentedness with being where you are in the middle of both pain and joy and doing something that a lot of people are struggling and writing books about and you're even doing retreats on and that is living in the present moment. Living in the present moment is I think the most joyful and important thing we can do to find our joy and it means living with the people you're with being aware and responding living in the present moment is the core